0: From the ACLU, this is at Liberty. I'm Linda Morris. I use she, her, and they, them pronouns, and I'm a staff attorney for the ACLU Women's Rights Project and your host for the next few weeks. I first joined as a guest on this podcast in January 2020 to talk about my organizing work with Sewer for Solidarity in the Japanese-American community, and I am so thrilled to be back. This week, we're bringing you a conversation about the recent surge of anti-trans bills that have been levied in state legislatures. 2020 saw 79 different anti-trans state bills dealing with everything from education to athletics and healthcare to bathroom access. In 2021, that count nearly doubled with 147 proposals aimed at trans people and especially trans kids. And this year, in 2022, We're tracking roughly 280 bills that have been filed ahead of or during this legislative session. Now, let's be clear transphobia is not new, and neither is the rhetoric that fuels it. Anti trans legislation has often been framed as necessary for the safety and protection of women and children, and in particular, white women and children. This weaponization of whiteness and femininity has deep roots in this country's history and is prompting unprecedented consequences for the trans community. Joining us to share the history behind this crisis and what we can do about it is Nikita Shepard, a PhD candidate in history at Columbia University. Their work explores histories of LGBTQ communities, gender and sexuality, and racial and social movements in the United States and beyond. Nikita, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much, it's a pleasure.
0: To get us started, Nikita, what do you make of this surge in anti-trans legislation across the country and where is it coming from?
1: Yeah, so as most of the listeners will know, this is a truly horrifying surge of legislation across the entire country that is targeting some of the most vulnerable people in this country even in places like New Hampshire and Michigan that have um, in other situations been understood as more LGBTQ friendly. And a particularly odd feature of them is that while some of them are more broadly targeting the LGBTQ plus community, um, most of them are really honing in on trans people and specifically trans youth. So yeah, the questions that we have to be asking now are like, why trans people and trans kids in particular And why now? What's going on now? The place that I would kind of locate the start of this particular anti-trans surge is in 2015 in Houston when there was a local ordinance that would have provided anti-discrimination protections on the basis of gender identity. And there was a campaign called the Campaign for Houston that uh, mobilized under the slogan, no men in women's bathrooms and uh, managed to successfully prevent this ordinance from going forward. So in 2014, you have the Ferguson uprising, followed by the uprisings in Baltimore and the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement. And in 2015, you have the Supreme Court ruling that um, legalized same-sex marriage. It seemed like the religious right had sort of lost this battle of the culture war, that, um, you know, this shift away from a civil rights framing to a love is love, kind of emphasis on on family, on love and emotion, things like that, had been really successful in changing American attitudes about same-sex marriage. So what are they going to do? These conservative forces were looking for uh, a new wedge, a new angle, a new way to sort of push back against some of the gains that had been made by social movements around gender and sexuality and also around racial justice. And trans people, and in particular the issue of trans folks in bathrooms, provided uh, a valuable wedge issue for a number of reasons. One, um, it uh, by focusing on a, a narrower even smaller segment of the community that was more marginalized and has historically been marginalized even among lesbian, gay, and bisexual communities, uh, it was a way to target a demographic that was more vulnerable. It also tied into a perception that's inaccurate that trans kids, trans young people are something new, um, that this is something that uh, is sort of like unprecedented, an unprecedented shift in ex- a social experiment in uh, gender norms. And third, it tapped into fears around gender violence and locating the bathroom, the public bathroom as a particular site of uh, imagined gender violence. And if you look at the materials, the sort of promotional materials that were used in this 2015 2015- 15 campaign, um, there's this advertisement, a really just noxious uh, video advertisement of uh, a young white girl in a bathroom stall, sort of turning around, and there's this large, kind of hairy, darker skinned hand reaching out towards her. Now, this fantasy has nothing to do with the reality of trans people trying to use the bathroom. Let's just be clear about that. But what it does have to do with is a long history of using white children and white girls and women in particular, and their fears for safety as a political issue to uh, heighten racial inequality and the marginalization of gender and sexual minorities. So when that campaign won, uh, I believe that folks on the right, folks in the conservative movement, realized that they could target trans folks and trans youth in particular as a new culture war issue. So that even if they lost on gay marriage, even if um, they felt threatened by Black Lives Matter and some of the racial justice movements that were happening, that this was a way that the white socially conservative base who were anxious about some of these changes, in particular around gender and sexuality, could be remobilized. And in order to do that, they tapped on this very long history around this politics of protecting children, which we'll go on and talk more about.
0: I think that's just incredible to think about in terms of this moment and where it really sits in the context of our larger history and especially our recent history around these issues. And, you know, these attacks on trans lives, they haven't just been limited to the legislatures. We saw just last month, Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued a directive that stated that providing gender-affirming medical care to young people is a form of child abuse and ordered the state welfare agency to launch child abuse investigations into parents of trans children who are receiving that care. And I think that this really speaks to what you just said, that this has really been framed around the protection of children in particular. And of course, this directive is beyond disturbing and horrific. And the ACLU and our partners recently filed an emergency lawsuit to challenge this directive. And fortunately, the state court issued an injunctive order blocking the state of Texas from enforcing uh, the directive just on March 11th. But I wondered if you could speak to the impact of policies like this on trans young people in particular, as well as the impact on their families and the people who are providing care to trans people.
1: Absolutely. So you're right that this is just like a particularly horrifying and cruel uh directive and i'm super grateful to the aclu and everyone else who's been organizing on the ground to try to stop this i i want to say that child abuse is a very real phenomenon and needs to be taken seriously it just has nothing to do whatsoever with providing medically appropriate gender affirming health care but in thinking about this texas directive like Basically, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, um, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, and these other politicians who are pushing this agenda, they're doing this massive gaslighting campaign. So where everything that they say is the polar opposite of what's actually happening. So they say that providing gender-affirming health care to trans kids is child abuse. The truth is that denying gender-affirming health care to trans kids is actually abusive. And if you don't have to take my word for it, ask the American Academy of Pediatrics, the people who actually work on a medical level with children, and they will tell you the same thing. These governors are saying that, you know, in in reference to the don't say gay bill in Florida, uh, they're saying that teachers are trying to force transgender ideology onto inappropriately young children in classrooms. The reality is that they are passing laws that are enshrining anti-trans ideology in classrooms around their states. And, you know, many of our listeners will really be familiar with the statistics around youth suicide, youth homelessness, youth depression, um, that for LGBTQ young people and specifically for trans and gender nonconforming young people are just astronomically high. And so it's just like indescribably cruel, this targeting specifically of healthcare providers and specifically for young people to, to the point that it's sort of like, you know, it's hard to even fathom until you pan back and you think about what is the broader political strategy. And this is where we have to actually look back further in American history to this long history of child protection. What we find is that it actually doesn't really have a lot to do with protecting children. It has a lot more to do with about protecting race and gender roles. Um, Just one last uh, note on this. So I, I used to work as a rape crisis counselor a few years ago before I, I went back to school for history. And so I, among other things, I would lead support groups for people who were survivors of child abuse. So one of the things that we learn in, in that context is that children are much more likely to be abused by family members or in the home or by authority figures in schools, in churches or on sports teams So if these politicians were actually concerned about child abuse, actually concerned with ending it, then the kinds of institutions they would be interrogating and challenging would be the nuclear family, the church, the school, sports teams. But of course, you're never going to hear a conservative politician saying that. So what that tells me is that this is not actually about ending child abuse. It's about enforcing gender roles because all of these institutions we've mentioned where child abuse is most common, the nuclear family, the church, the school, the sports team. These are the places where gender roles are most strictly enforced for young people. So what we're seeing, again, it has nothing to do with protecting children. It has everything to do with solidifying a conservative gender order and making young people who don't fit into it feel like they have no escape and no place.
0: Yeah. And that's that's absolutely right. And actually, I also, prior to becoming a a lawyer at the ACLU. I worked um, as an advocate for sexual assault survivors, including child sexual abuse survivors. And I think that's exactly right, that this has nothing to do with protection of children. And so the fact that this has gotten completely twisted is just um, just horrific, like we said And like you said, what has become so clear in this moment is that when legislators are talking about the protection of women and talking about the protection of children, what they're really talking about is the protection of white women and white children. And, um, you know, recently what came to mind is a photo that circulated of... Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signing into law a uh, ban on trans women and girls competing in women's sports. And what was really striking to me about this photo, and I'm not sure if you've seen it, but the way that it was staged is um, that Governor Reynolds was signing this piece of of, um, legislation into law, and she was surrounded by white girls who were cheering her on. And I found... um, that image so striking and so indicative of of the forces at play, these very forces that you're talking about. And so could you talk a little bit more about how these recent attacks on the trans community are directly related to race and white supremacy and what those historical roots are?
1: Absolutely. So to back up a little bit, throughout the modern history of the United States, there have been two main categories of people who've been singled out for Uh, being in need of protection, which is white women and children broadly, particularly white children. And there's always been a lot of sort of intertwining of the discourses around these two particular groups, but they also have distinct histories. And I'll try to talk a little bit about that. So um, uh, while protection of women has been sort of a, a theme for a very long time, protection of children is actually historically considerably more recent while in much of the country, in you know the 20s, the 30s, into the 1940s, this rhetoric of child protection was sort of gaining steam, in uh, the South, this is during the Jim Crow era, it was much more common, much more of a political focus to have a discourse of protecting white women. This was... The nominal justification the sort of the reason that was given for a massive amount of the racial terror lynchings that happened from particularly the 1880s all the way up into the 1950s. Now, it's important to be clear that this was not the actual reason why these attacks were happening, but this was the discourse that was given to justify them. The actual reasons often had more to do with suppressing labor organizing or preventing black political organizing or um, economic competition uh, Upholding racial etiquette, these sorts of things. But the imperative to protect white women, supposedly, from African-American men in particular, was uh, the justification for this massive amount of political violence. So this is sort of the the backstory as we get into the mid-20th century. Now, with World War II and then with the subsequent Cold War, uh, the rhetoric uh, around children shifts a little bit from sort of like protection and child welfare towards um, children as sort of like symbols of democracy, symbols of American freedom. Now, this starts to become a particular problem in the 1950s when you have uh, the rise of the Black freedom struggle and the civil rights movement in the South. In the 1950s, you have a major uptick in organizing in the South. And one of the catalysts to this in 1955 was the lynching of Emmett Till, Emmett Till was a 14-year-old um, black child from Chicago who was in Mississippi visiting family and was brutally murdered. And um, his mother uh, had an open casket funeral and his uh, quite brutally uh, mangled body was became part of the visual culture of the 1950s. And it really catalyzed this huge amount of horror and shock and scrutiny about the impact of white supremacy in the South. And so it was one of those moments where this discourse of, oh, you know, well, what this violence is actually about is protecting white women began to be really challenged because it was coming into conflict with these other discourses about protecting children. And this was sort of driven home especially uh, sharply in 1963 when uh, a group of white supremacists from the Ku Klux Klan bombed a church in Birmingham and four young black girls were killed, now this this was sort of like represented like the absolute moral low point of the segregationist South in which um, there was just absolutely no way that people of any conscience could justify uh, the social system that folks were trying to protect through this kind of violence when these you know children who had nothing to do with anything were just brutally murdered. So so it's this moment in the 1950s and 1960s where child protection on one hand and the protection of white women in this idealized way in the South were were coming into conflict. Now, there was another key turning point that happened in the 50s that marked the origin of some of the conservative strategies that we're still seeing today. And that came in the aftermath of the Brown versus Board of Education decision in which the Supreme Court ruled that um, Uh, public schools had to desegregate with all due speed. Now, as as we know, that desegregation never really happened in practice, but uh, it was at least an imperative that was sort of challenging the white supremacist norms of segregation in the South. So uh, in the aftermath of that, uh, a massive white supremacist political campaign that was known as Massive Resistance began to uh, unfold. And while this was led in Washington by political representatives from the South who signed this thing called the Southern Manifesto, saying that no way, we're not going to integrate. On the ground in local communities, a lot of this organizing was led by white women who were invested um, in uh, using this this sort of position as mothers, uh, as a way of having like a a moral platform for which to to argue against desegregation. So during this period in the mid fifties, late fifties, and into the 1960s, you have a lot of activism around um, mothers and parents of children arguing that to protect their children, we had to keep racial segregation in place, making arguments on the basis of black children's supposed inferiority or penchant for disease or violence or things like that. And so uh, lots of these women who were sort of resentful about the way that the sort of imperative to protect white womanhood was being displaced uh, used this rhetoric of child protection and sort of turned it towards white supremacist purposes. But with the gains of the civil rights movement, particularly into the 1960s, with the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and with the sort of moral delegitimizing of segregation and white supremacy and Jim Crow uh, that happened around this time, um, there began to be a shift where some of these activists who were uh, using this language of child protection in a more explicitly racial way began to shift their rhetoric, and they began to shift it into a more race-neutral direction. In, In this, they started talking about things like parental rights, school choice, these sorts of things that they, they don't say anything about whiteness in them, but in practice, they have a lot to do with protecting segregation and protecting the rights of white parents and uh, protecting white children. And that sort of sets the stage for the 1970s with the real emergence of uh, the religious right and the conservative movement um, and the form of child protection rhetoric that we're more familiar with today.
0: Wow. I'm just so struck by how um, parental rights and school choice, that is language that is so current to today and and language that I hear um, all the time. And, And just really hearing that history provides incredibly important context. And I really do want to talk to you about what happens in the 1970s. Um, you know, you wrote in the Washington Post about how the weaponization of white womanhood and, and also this uh, the politics of, of protection really came into play when we were talking about um, efforts to justify welfare cuts and restrictions on reproductive health that disproportionately impacted communities of color. And I would love to, to just hear more about what happened there.
1: Sure. So what conservative movements found was that child protection was a really powerful rhetoric. It was, it was versatile. It could be applied to a lot of different situations and a lot of different political agendas, but it could mobilize their base by touching into that almost kind of primal instinct that many parents have to protect their children. And of course, that's that's pretty reasonable, like who wouldn't want to protect their children, right? But unfortunately, this language in its political use has had really toxic, really harmful effects. And one of the key turning points in that came in 1977, where this woman named Anita Bryant, who was uh, sort of like a Christian pop star and orange juice spokeswoman, uh, decided that she was going to enter the political fray in uh, Miami-Dade County, Florida, when a group of gay activists had been uh, attempting to pass an anti-discrimination ordinance for the county that would have protected gay men and lesbians against discrimination. Now, um, it's important to say a word about the racial politics that are going on here. So um, in uh, early lesbian and gay movements, often adopted the sort of paradigms and language of the Black freedom struggle and civil rights movement in order to sort of make sense of how gay men and lesbians could make political claims. Now, this is sort of a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, it can create a powerful basis for solidarity across lines of difference between white gay men and lesbians and African Americans of many sexual orientations. On the other hand, it can also take an appropriative form in which uh, white lesbian and gay activists sort of act as if they uh, have a similar kind of oppression to African-Americans when they simply don't. And um, this was one of the dynamics that was playing out in uh, Florida in 1977, where a mostly white coalition of lesbian and gay activists were using some of the civil rights rhetoric that was sort of cut and pasted from uh, black freedom and other ethnic liberation struggles in ways that were sort of uncomfortable and inappropriate. And Anita Bryant, Uh, figured out a a very strategically powerful way to uh, tap into this by using the... by combining these racial tensions with the language of child protection. She started a campaign called Save Our Children and uh, argued that homosexuals, because they cannot reproduce, have to recruit. And uh, the way that they recruit is by targeting children, by preying on children and it was really powerful and it was really successful it uh, the ordinance was overturned by a popular vote of a, a landslide and it set in motion this huge backlash that i think is actually very similar to the backlash we're seeing today what you'll find is a common theme in many of these is that these supposedly child protection oriented campaigns have disproportionate effects on communities of color we see that with uh, welfare debates, we see that with mass incarceration policies, like all these sorts of policies that, even when they are supported by a multiracial constituency, have these um, very harmful effects. And so uh, so the religious right found that um, they'd sort of hit upon a really powerful formula. And that is exactly what we're seeing today from two thousand and fifteen to the present. Um, we're seeing these conservative movements recognizing that, by frightening people into thinking that their children are under threat, you can push a really wide range of agendas.
0: Yeah, wow. That's an incredibly important reminder that, that these attacks are so incredibly linked um, to these other issue areas that oftentimes it sounds like conservative politics are really looking at these anti-trans bills As part of a broader campaign to pass probably other harmful measures that disproportionately harm black and brown folks, that disproportionately harm poor people. You know, I wanted to also ask you do you think that the media and even advocates who are opposing? Uh, these measures that are opposing these attacks on on the trans community are playing a role in any way in validating the narratives that we've been talking about? Um, Mm. And if so, what do you think should be considered for media or advocates or just anyone who's talking about these issues?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. And it's a complicated one because uh, it's very tempting to just want to flip the rhetoric and be like, Well, you know, Greg Abbott says he's protecting children from child abuse. No, we're protecting children because we're providing them the care that they need. And that's understandable, and I wouldn't necessarily criticize it. But the problem is, again, as we've seen, so long as we're in this this discourse of protecting children, more often than not, it's going to be turned to political purposes that are not actually aligned with what we want. I would want to hear from a wide range of activists and you know, legal workers and stuff about what's been effective in different contexts. But for myself, what I would say, I think children need less protection and more empowerment. Less protection, more empowerment. So what I mean by that is if we're giving parents more rights and more power to wield, it doesn't keep their children safer. In many cases, it's quite the opposite. So an example is this provision that thankfully didn't make it into the final version of the Florida don't say gay bill, but um, it's still in bills in Arizona and Alabama that are pending that would mandate school officials who learn about a uh, student's gender or sexual identity to disclose this to their parents. And, you know, those of us who grew up in, in, in the South and uh, in some of these settings, like know that that can be literally fatal to young people, literally fatal. So, um, so again, like, uh, uh, and similarly, like pr- protecting children from information about things like sexuality and gender doesn't keep them safe. It's directly responsible for massive amounts of harm, ranging from STIs, unplanned pregnancies, sexual violence to. Poor self-esteem, isolation, self-harm, like all these sorts of things. So I just think that protection is the wrong way to think about it. I think that empowerment is a much more promising way to think about how we should relate to young people and LGBTQ and trans young people in particular. And so um, part of that's a shift in sort of how we talk about it, but it's also a shift in sort of how we think about political organizing. So I want to really highlight in this moment, in the last week or two, these uh, student walkouts that have been happening in Florida that have been initiated by youth, led by youth. Um, and it's building off of this broader pattern of youth mobilization against um, gun violence, against racist police murders, against COVID policies that have put young people at risk. Um, so we're seeing a real surge in youth-led youth activism. And one of the things that we can be doing in addition to our work, uh, you know, challenging these bills and legislatures is really trying to highlight and uplift that youth-led organizing that recognizes youth empowerment and not just child protection as one of the things that's most likely to actually create real lasting real lasting safety and social justice.
0: Oh, I love that so much. Just the shift from talking about protection to empowerment and talking about autonomy and agency for young people is so important. Uh, thank you so much for that framing. Um, I think that's incredible. And, um, you know, I think just as in closing, many of our listeners care deeply about trans justice and about the issues that we've been talking about and want to find ways to get involved in fighting for trans rights and in in fighting for gender justice. So what would you recommend to listeners who are trying to think about how they can support the trans community and how they can support the LGBTQ plus community um, in the face of all of these attacks?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So obviously the work that the ACLU is doing is super critical in fighting this on the legislative front um, and in the courts. But there's also a lot of things that regardless of where you're situated in society that you can do. Um, So I think that when these oppressive laws are passed, I think we have to disobey them. We have to say no. We have to challenge these provisions in our everyday lives, in our schools, with our children, et cetera. And this can take a lot of different forms. Uh, We can help support gender-inclusive, self-organized athletic options for kids who have been excluded from leagues at their schools. We can share information freely uh, with young people about gender identity, sexuality, and other topics that are being censored by schools and by many parents. During the pandemic, we've seen this uh, large expansion of mutual aid programs around the country, which has been really exciting. And so thinking about uh, mutual aid programs that include clothing, makeup, toiletries, and other gender-affirming necessities uh, that are not sorted by gender and are accessible to young people, um, that can be really important to people. Uh, Helping to organize self-defense and de-escalation workshops for trans and gender non-conforming young people to help protect themselves from bullying or abuse, whether it's in schools or in the home. Providing sanctuary space whenever possible to young people who have to get out of states that are increasingly hostile or have to get out of home situations that are not affirming. These are all sorts of direct action approaches that we can take to complement the sort of fights that we're doing in uh, legislatures and in courts as well. And then in terms of how we think about it and how we talk about it, as I mentioned before, the shift away from child protection towards youth empowerment, I think, is a big part of it. And um, the framework that I like to use to think about sort of what we're fighting for, the the transformative vision, has to do with gender self-determination. And I think this is a little bit broader than the framing of trans rights, per se. But I like to talk about gender self-determination first because it's more expansive it goes beyond just defending ourselves against attacks uh, or securing specific legislation towards creating the conditions for our flourishing on our own terms in a a broader frame. Um, I also like talking about gender self-determination because it's inclusive. So whether or not you personally identify as trans or non-binary or otherwise, um, it's the recognition that all of our lives are gonna get better when we have the chance to determine our genders for ourselves. Now, this isn't meant to displace trans people from the center of this organizing, but just to recognize that all of us have a stake in thinking about gender Um, self-determination. It's also, it's autonomous. It doesn't require, you know, the state or legislatures or other authorities to sort of grant or secure rights, but... um, Recognize that it's it's our desires and our own communities and our ways of understanding ourselves that uh, that we're trying to affirm, and also I like it because it sort of it resonates with other struggles. Uh, we have to have it's twenty twenty two. We have to have an intersectional lens in thinking about these things. So in thinking about um, self determination across many different communities that obviously overlap. So what uh, part of what we've been talking about today is how. The struggle for trans liberation and for gender self-determination is intimately tied up with histories of racism and white supremacy in the United States. And it's really exciting to see the way that in Black Lives Matter and um, undocumented youth movements and things like that, that LGBTQ young people are really coming to the forefront in their participation and are recognizing these uh, intersectional links. So so that's why I like to think about gender self-determination as the sort of horizon that we're fighting for. And fighting for for and with young people too. And we're seeing this, you know, we're seeing this in practice in the way that young people digitally and in social media and in their own communities are creating this like amazing new set of frameworks for gendered and sexual self-understandings that are so much more complex and nuanced than even the ones that I grew up with. And just like honoring this, amplifying this, fighting for it in the ways that we can as adults and, um, and as allies, And uh, yeah, and recognizing that we all have a stake in it, in fighting for this liberation for trans people, for young people, for people of color, and for all of the intersections that make up our lives.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Nikita. You are amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and, and just your wisdom and all of that history with us. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. And yeah, thank you for being on the podcast today.
1: Linda, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate your feedback. Until next week, take care and be kind to each other.